Hey, everybody, and welcome to Views on View. I'm Chris Fritz. Today on our panel, we have Ari Clark, who works on real-time view and is a UX UI engineer at Liquid. Hello. Ben Hong, who's a Vue.js educator, developer, and uh, most importantly, some rando we picked off on the street. Hello. And today our guest is Gwen Faraday. Uh, Gwen, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Gwen. I'm a developer currently living in Indianapolis, Indiana. I've been working with Vue for almost two years and kind of spreading it, the seed of Vue around where I live and around the East Coast. Spreading the gospel, the good word. Yeah. <laughs> Over the last many years, we've had a ton of terrific people on JavaScript Jabber. And one thing that I realized over the last few years was that we were missing out on some of the real story there. So we would talk about the topic that they were experts in and help you keep up on what's going on in the JavaScript community. But I felt like we had these terrific people on there and we didn't really talk about who they were. So I pulled together a show called My JavaScript Story. And what we do is we interview the people that we've had on JavaScript Jabber or people just from the community. Maybe we'll have you on sometime. And we talk about how they got into programming, how they got into JavaScript, what they're working on, what they're well known for, and how they've developed their career. And some of the people are extremely well known and come from really interesting backgrounds. So if you're curious about how your JavaScript heroes got into JavaScript, then go check out My JavaScript Story. You can find it at myjsstory.com. How did you get into Vue? Were you working in JavaScript before that or? Yeah, I was working in JavaScript for several years before I touched Vue. And I was actually teaching a few different JavaScript frameworks and mentoring students from local coding boot camps as well. So I felt like there were a lot of things in the whole JavaScript ecosystem really that weren't designed around the humans that were going to use it. And it was really frustrating to teach certain things and my friend kept trying to get me to try Vue, which looked really strange at first, kind of a conglomerate of Knockout and React and a whole bunch of different things. So I finally got into it. Their documentation was really good. And I've been hooked on it for about two years now. And so recently I was running a software team to build a project and we had to take on all these brand new interns who had no JavaScript experience whatsoever. And I feel like it was really our design decision to use Vue that allowed them to get onboarded very quickly and to be able to be productive. Really within the first week, they were committing code and all those different layers of abstraction they had to learn, JavaScript and then Vue and all the different parts of the ecosystem. But they, they picked it up really well. I think that's because of Vue's human-focused design. Yeah, that, that's a lot. I don't envy them. Right? Yeah. It's really impressive. Yeah. So coming to Vue as an educator, how did you find that Vue was better able to help get those those newer developers, those interns onboarded, you know, than some other things that you've used in the past? What was different? So there's just so many design decisions that the Vue core team has made for, I mean, at a very low level, they name things. It's kind of similar to jQuery, where everything is exactly what you think it should be called. And it's very easy to use and kind of intuitive to navigate around the library because of that. The layout, how it's very lightweight. Of course, the documentation makes it very accessible for people to come on board with it. And a lot of other really good design decisions that you might not think about. I think it was very smart of the Vue team to use um, or to have Vuex and Vue Router 
as one of their core products because another very popular framework that I used to use, you know, let other groups basically handle making the state management and the router management. And it causes a lot of confusion and it's, it's much, much harder to learn because of that. But the whole view ecosystem is very cohesive and it's not that it's just for beginners or just simple and beginner friendly. No, it's absolutely production ready, battle tested, and it's also human focused and easy to use, which is really nice. Well said. <laughs> yeah, I really like the fact that you describe view as human focused and like human centered design. Yeah, I always knew that, but never had the words for it. So I'm totally stealing that. It feels like a lot of software is made by really smart people who don't necessarily think about the humans that are going to be using the software. It's not a machine that is writing the code. It's actually humans. And also software developers skew young and skew new. So the more tools and frameworks and things that we can make easier to onboard these newer developers, the better it is for everyone, for companies, for individuals, everybody. Can you remember any specific examples where you know, Vue just helped people understand like a little bit more or a little bit more about Vue itself or about JavaScript? Examples of how, did you ask examples of how Vue helps people understand? Yeah, like when you're, when you're teaching it, like what are, or at least conversely, what are some struggles that you've had in the past that you don't struggle with with Vue or don't struggle with as much? Yeah, so I used to teach... React, I did actually quite a few React workshops and people seem to get really caught up with lifecycle hooks and component will, should mount all those different naming conventions. And I think it's a, a little bit harder, you know, in the class-based syntax and having to use JSX, which they're not familiar with, and just all those extra little pieces that you have to learn. And Vue pretty much just works out of the box. You write an HTML tag, and then you write script tag, import the library, and it's much simpler to get started. Also, some other parts of the ecosystem are much, much harder to teach, especially when I, I did a Redux workshop once and for new developers, and it was very hard to explain the concepts, even though they were already in my head because I had been using them. So it seemed natural to me, but it was very hard to pass that on to someone where I think Vuex is much, much easier to understand. It's just make this object and it's a global object and it's not so convoluted, I feel like. I would tend to agree with that assessment, <laughs> having started with Redux and then moved to Vuex. Yeah. So, so you feel like there are just fewer concepts to learn in order to, to get started and start working? Yeah, I feel like... There are definitely fewer layers of abstraction, so it is a bit easier to get started. I also feel like the layers that are there have also been really well tested and gone over. Like, you know, do people really understand this and will they be able to use this? Just one thing I love about the Vue.js project. Yeah, we do have a lot of discussions about things like that. And uh, we, I also try to do a lot of user testing. And so what was the first project or was this the first project that you used Vue on, like the, the first big project with uh, these, these four interns? Uh, no, I used it in several other projects. I also 
uh, had a startup where we used Vue on 100% of the code. Yeah, so I've definitely used it probably at four in four or five applications at the production level, not just things I was building myself. Oh, wow. So I'm, I, I'm curious now, like as a, also from an educator's perspective, what are some things that you've struggled with or that people that you've been trying to teach have struggled with where, you know, you, you haven't liked some aspect of, of the design of you as much? In Vue specifically? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, this isn't really specific to Vue, but I find that when I'm teaching, it's really hard to go step by step and to to just remember where somebody was, like where I was, you know, you know, six years ago or however long ago it was. So it's really hard to go back there and go step by step over this beginner material and not skip anything that they'll need to know. I think teaching is just very difficult in general. So it's, it's hard to remember what you knew and what you didn't know and not make too many assumptions. Yeah, or even the lingo. There's so much lingo that we use every day that we don't think about. But like the interns didn't really know how rest worked or any of those things. And I don't know what you're talking about. I just build single page applications that are progressive web apps. Uh, you know, throw in some reactive state management, and we're good. Like I don't, I don't see where there's any lingo or you know, you know, complex jargon in there. <laughs> Uh, and also as a technologist, I feel like it's hard for us to talk to people outside about technology because we're so wrapped up in it and wrapped up in this world where we have our own language, really. I definitely feel that as someone who's married to a non-tech person. <laughs> like sometimes I'm like, I have no idea if he's actually following along, but he's nodding. So sure. Yeah, I'm not a fan of all the jargon either. I, I try to... I try to avoid it when possible, but sometimes you have to use it because it's what everybody else is talking about and it's just how we refer to the thing. Yeah. But it's, it's difficult. You're an educator too, right? I am, yeah. That's my background. I was actually an educator before I got into coding at all. So how did you get into like, education? Did you, did you first become an educator or were you, were you first a programmer? So I traveled quite a bit before I became a programmer. Well, I was always coding on the side and building websites and I did some MATLAB and some other things. But really when I got into coding, it just felt like a natural evolution to share what I knew with other people, which also helped me learn a lot more. So it's not like I had this goal of becoming an educator. It just kind of happened. And when I was learning, I actually started meetup groups about the topics I was learning about so that I could discuss it with other people because I saw, you know, there aren't that many beginner or intermediate friendly meetup groups or there aren't meetup groups on a specific topic around. So that helped me a lot. And then as a meetup group founder, I need people to speak about things and talk about things. So then I had to learn about those things and teach about those things. I feel like that has really helped me grow a lot quicker than I would have if I wasn't a teacher. Yeah, I feel like I I don't really know something until I have to explain it. (laughs) Yeah, like I think I know things and then I try to explain it and I think, oh, 
oh, I don't know this at all. I guess I should probably try to explain it to people so I can figure it out for myself too. <laughs> yeah, I find myself using a lot of things just on blind faith. Like I'm like, oh, it worked once. I'll just keep using it, but I have no idea why I'm doing it this way. I'm like, it worked. I'm just going to keep doing it. Yeah. Now, Gwen, uh, as I understand it, you're a self-taught programmer. Is that right? I call myself self-taught. I did take um, programming in college, like C++ and things. And then I took a hiatus where I was just doing it recreationally. I didn't finish college, by the way. So then... Hey, me neither. <laughs> yeah, and guess what? No job interview has ever asked me about that. So Right, yeah. feel too bad. When I got back into programming and specifically web development, I really hit it hard, you know, setting a goal to study at least three hours every day. So I feel like I essentially taught myself Although I had, you know, many teachers online and mentors and people. So I don't know if that's the best term for it. We'll go with it anyway. <laughs> Do you feel like the fact that you did take a sort of a self-paced, let's call it that self-paced <laughs> learning approach that that had any impact on how you learned how to teach since you were also learning how to learn, if that makes any sense? I think it definitely helped me, all the struggles that I went through. I was able to explain a lot better. One thing I see, you know, being a mentor to people coming through boot camps is that they're crammed full of so much knowledge so quickly and they don't really understand what it is or what they're doing or why they're doing it. So I feel like, you know, teaching myself and really struggling to learn those things has helped me a lot. So you feel like sometimes people learn, you know, quote unquote, best practices, like, you know, don't, don't repeat yourself, you know, so they'll, they'll try to find, you know, lots of ways to just, you know, not repeat the same code over and over again without really ever learning, like, well, why am I doing this? Like, what is it saving me from? And, you know, when might I want to make an exception, that kind of thing? Yeah, definitely. And it's hard because when you're in a boot camp situation, you know, you're not able to work usually. So you're taking this time off of work, it's expensive, you have a deadline, you have to, you know, not everyone learns the same way at the same speed. And you have this set in stone deadline, usually, like you have to learn this much stuff by this time, and be able to program. And I think it's, it's rather unreasonable for most people. Mm. So for people who, like, want to get into programming, or just starting to get into programming, like if they're listening to this, and you know, they've you know, dip their dip their toes a little bit into programming and into web development, and they started to listen to podcasts like this one. Like, what would you recommend to people to get started? Like, should they go to a boot camp? Should they do something else? Like, how do they become a programmer without you know going and studying four years of computer science at university? So, I think the first thing is people who want to try it should start with something like Free Code Camp and make sure they really want to do it. I think before you ever sign up for a bootcamp, you should have at least built a, some kind of a web application and see if you enjoy coding and see if you can really work through those struggles and overcome them because it's not just all fun and games and a bigger salary, which is what a lot of people are after. It's the actual struggle of day-to-day figuring out where the bugs are and all that stuff. That's really what the majority of coding is. 
So I, th- I think for anyone who's thinking about getting into coding, college and boot camp aren't bad options, but I think the first thing that anyone should do, go on a site like freecodecamp.org. It's completely free, thousands of hours of curriculum, takes you through building projects and see if you really like it. And then from there, you have you know all your different options. You can continue to study on your own and find mentors, network in your local community, or you could look at local or online boot camps or look at, you know, a four-degree institution if you want to go more of the traditional route. How would you recommend um, or what are some of the approaches you take to networking within your community to find mentors and build relationships with other developers? So I'm kind of shy. So it's a little bit hard for me. It's better for me now that I'm I kind of know the tech lingo and stuff and I can fit in a little bit. So, well, the best thing that I ever did was start speaking at events because I was so nervous to introduce myself individually to people. But if I signed up to speak, you know, then I'm stuck speaking and (laughs) everyone else is stuck listening to me. (laughs) That is bold. I like it. (laughs) And it works. So everyone knows your name. They know who you are, what you're about. You can do an intro, like a pitch about yourself. And then you don't have to introduce yourself because people come up to you afterwards and want to talk to you. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. I mean, so many people are terrified of public speaking, but someone was like, it's perfect for people who are shy and introverted because you got to plan what you're going to say. Like, you know exactly what you're going to say when you get up there. And then people will talk to you about a topic you basically like put in their heads already. So, yeah, I, I love that sort of way of thinking of meeting people. Yeah, it's worked really well for me. And a lot of people wouldn't think intuitively that like, oh, you know, for shy people, it's a good idea to, you know, start speaking and to organize meetups like you have. But I, I find that for a, a lot of shy people, what they feel uncomfortable with is unstructured social activities, you know, where they don't know exactly what their role is. So if you, if you sign up to speak, you know, you have a very clear role practice for that. You know, you can practice exactly what you're going to say. You'll have visual aids to help you say it, which uh, I wish I had more visual aids and just casual conversations. I think that would, <laughs> yeah. that would help me a lot. <laughs> That's the next billion dollar idea. And when you're organizing a meetup, like you are in charge. So you are the only one with a well-defined role there and everyone else is <laughs> fumbling around and is like, oh yeah, should I say hi? Or I don't know, probably no one cares. But I don't know. Uh, I'm just going to leave. <laughs> Very true. Yeah, and that's I almost, right. Of course, when I'm on a meetup, like I have to go and introduce myself to everyone and yep. going and friendly. Yeah, speaking of organizing meetups, what sort of got you into starting your meetup? Because I've, I've started a few myself and always interested in understanding sort of where people's origin stories are with these sort of things. Yeah, I've started a couple meetups so far. The first one was just because there, so I moved to Indianapolis and I didn't really know anybody. So I wanted to meet people in the programming community. And there also weren't really active meetups out here that were focused around people that were learning or newer to coding. I went to like the Vim meetup and Python and they were talking about super advanced stuff. So I I wanted to create kind of a community of people who could help each other and support each other learn. And it kind of evolved from there. And now we have 1,100 members and we do 
So wow. yeah, so it's been a, a really great experience. And it was all because of that one small decision saying, hey, I'm going to start posting this monthly code and coffee meeting and see where it goes. That's amazing. And I recently started a blockchain meetup where we get together and talk about new technologies, try to get people interested in newer technologies. So that's been a lot of fun too. When you started that, were you like a blockchain expert already or? No, but the funny thing is when you start a meetup, people look at you as an expert. So people from around town now want to meet with me or talk to me about blockchain not necessarily because of my credentials, but because my name is the organizer of that meetup. Is that scary? Like, uh, I'm thinking uh, a lot of people listening at home and think like, yeah, I'm kind of interested in blockchain. I'd like to learn more about it. But if I start my own meetup, then everyone will like ask me a bunch of questions and I won't know the answers. And then I'll be exposed as a fraud and everyone will know I don't know what I'm talking about. And I'll, I'll just go home crying in shame. Has that happened? Has that been... <laughs> I hope this isn't getting too personal. <laughs> so it's, it really helps you learn when you start a meetup because then you're forced to learn a lot. And all the meetings I've had with business owners interested in blockchain and developers, I just learned so much from every single one. And then, you know, creating content for meetups, which is also a lot of fun and usually involves some kind of view on the front end too. That's been a ton of fun and also pushed me to keep learning and keep up with what I'm doing, where I feel like I would not be at the level I'm at if you know, I didn't start these meetups and push myself. What do you do when people ask you about things that you don't know about? Because they assume that you're like just a super expert. I just say I don't know. <laughs> what? That's incredible. Huh? That's, I think that's good advice. <laughs> no, that's, that's the best advice. Yeah, I think I think pretending you know and then just digging a hole and then digging deeper. Yeah, that matches my experience too. The, the only time <laughs> people getting in trouble, and the only times I've gotten in trouble too, is when like I try to. I, I don't. I don't usually try to pretend that I don't know things, but I try to sometimes not admit that I don't know things <laughs> until I'm forced to like answer directly <laughs> whether I know it. But yeah, that, that, just, that just gets me in trouble. And that's where, you know, you end up in situations where sometimes there's some shame in people giving you dirty looks. But as long as you <laughs> don't pretend to know anything you don't actually know, people are pretty friendly and happy. And I don't know about your experience, Gwen, but I find that like for people out there thinking about starting their own meetup, it's less about being the subject matter expert and more of like people seeing you as someone who's passionate about a topic and just helping to who has like basically the organizational skills to like set an event, set a time, and gather people together. I've never had anyone really come up to me and like, you're the organizer, therefore you must know everything. Like, I don't know if you've had any contra experiences, but... Oh, no one said that, but because you're the organizer, people naturally tend toward you. Like in this area, of, if a company's interested in blockchain development, you know, someone else might recommend, oh, you should go talk to Gwen about that. Gotcha. And I run the blockchain meetup. And how do you find speakers and things like that? Like if you're pretty new to the topic. That's a challenge. I try to keep it pretty open and free. I mean, I know how many struggles I had when I started speaking. So I try to give newer speakers a chance and say like, hey, you know, you can talk for five to 10 minutes if you want. And we'll have multiple talks. Or, hey, I reach out to people 
doing blockchain and say, hey, can you give a talk about this? You know, it's a bit easier with my local, like beginner friendly coding group, because there are tons of developers at Salesforce and other companies who want to help newer coders and will volunteer to give a talk or reuse a conference talk they already gave or to help out with like an interview practice session or something. Blockchain is a bit more niche, so it's a bit harder. So I do do most of the talks and I just did a workshop on Ethereum the other night. But it's not it's not really a chore for me. It's not something I have to do. It's something I like doing and I want to do. So in some ways, it's more like leading a study group. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that analogy. That's cool. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. And then uh, just sort of as you figure out like who comes to the meetups, like that's how you find out like who's using blockchain in the area and who you can reach out to for like more speakers and things like that. Yeah. And I talk to people at the meetups and because we're pretty much the only group in town focused on specifically blockchain development. There's a lot of stuff around investing in Bitcoin and trading and how to mine but uh, specifically developing on the technology where the only ones around. Very cool. So did you start a a Vue.js meetup in the area? So my meetup account has three accounts in it. So I have a blockchain right now and the beginner-friendly meetup. And then my friend started a Vue.js meetup on my account. And of course, I'm a huge supporter of Vue.js. So I tried to help him out initially. And now the the meetup's kind of taken off and a lot, there's been a lot of Vue adoption out here recently, which is also very exciting. So there are actually quite a few volunteers that help out with the Vue.js meetup. Usually it's really hard to get people to volunteer and help out with their time in a meetup, but there's been a lot of activity in the Vue.js one. Yeah, I like the name too, Vue.js Indie. Well, the first ones we added to the site for the event site. Yeah, and the main organizer of that meetup is so good at explaining things. And he was the one that got me into Vue because he's all about, he came from a UX background and now he's a programmer and he's all about human-focused design and accessibility. And so he has been, you know, he was very, very tired of all the other frameworks. So he's been heavily pushing view and trying to get companies around here to adopt it. And you gave a you gave a talk in Australia, if I'm remembering correctly, about like why you feel UJS is growing so fast. Is that accurate? Yeah, it was a slightly opinionated talk about 
YZJS is taking over the world, basically. So for people who haven't seen it, you know, we'll drop a link in the show notes, but what would you say like is, is one big takeaway from that talk? So I, I think just what I've said before, like how view focuses on human centered design and view is really the gold standard in JavaScript or a usable, well-designed framework with, with a great API and great tooling surrounding it that has been very well thought out. So I think all the other frameworks need to catch up with Vue.js. So that's basically more or less what I was explaining in this talk and really talking about some of my background and frustrations using other frameworks without trying to sound too negative because there are definitely a lot of good elements in other frameworks. And I think Vue took a lot of those good elements from other ideas and then kind of boiled it down into what it is now. I actually gave that talk at the local group here. And of course it was a, because the conference wasn't just a Vue.js conference. So a lot of the people in my audience had never used Vue before, but I gave that talk at the Vue.js meetup here. And I went into a lot more detail on exactly why Vue's the best JavaScript. I called it why Vue's the best JavaScript framework ever, but I couldn't. (laughs) I like it. Tell us how you really feel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that wouldn't be appropriate at a conference, but at a Vue user group, you know, it's popular. And we've been talking a lot about um, sort of teaching and helping to grow students. If I'm not mistaken, you were on a podcast, uh, I think Developer on Fire, talking about confident growth. Can you speak a little to that and like what yeah. that is? Yeah, I went on that podcast maybe over a year ago now. And that was my first podcast ever. So it was a really great experience. And we just uh, were basically talking about how I got into coding and how I was growing both personally and career-wise as a software developer. So that's basically, he made up the title for that one, but I think it fit with the content that we were discussing. And so with like the whole conf- uh, topic of confidence, um, obviously imposter syndrome is a big thing in our community. Like what do you usually have as far as advice for people who, f- who are dealing with that? So I, I think imposter syndrome is not always a bad thing, but because you know, less experienced people naturally feel like they're not as good. The, but it, I think a lot of people have or struggle a lot with feeling like they're less than they are or they can't do something. So, yeah. And in my local group, um, a lot of people reach out to me and say, like, "Hey, I really want to quit. I don't feel like I can ever do this." And it's just about encouraging them, telling them that, hey, you can do it. Because I think a lot of people don't realize that whether you're new or you're old, like we all have a lot of the same struggles. We just view things from a different perspective. So, Yeah, well said. And with the the easy learning curve of you that you've, uh, or the gentle learning curve of you that you've talked about, I've heard some people, really people who haven't used Vue, talk about how like, oh yeah, it's, it's really easy to learn, but you can't really do anything advanced with it. You know, it's really just for, you know, <laughs> beginners or, or really simple use cases. I, don't, I have no idea where that comes from. Because if you look at Knockout, Angular, React, any other framework, I mean, the docs only take you 
so far. And usually it's just into the basics. So, and then you have to build something out of that and then it becomes a production application. Actually, Vue does the best out of any framework, I think, in giving you a CLI where you can make a test app or you can choose to choose some manual configurations and have you know, a production-ready boilerplate right off the bat. And also Vue, the Vue.js project goes further than a lot of other projects because they have things like the cookbook now and some parts of the documentation that go a bit deeper into how Vue works and how you can use it in production. I think people just think it's simple and beginner friendly just because it's very small, lightweight and easy to use and people aren't used to that. And so they think, oh, this can't be production ready because it's too simple. Yeah, I feel like people think that in order for something to be powerful, it has to be difficult, <laughs> which is ridiculous. But I, I definitely feel like there is, a, especially the programming community, there's a bit of that mentality. Yeah. Going back to uh, your appearance on uh, Developer on Fire, because I did listen to that. One of the things that I found so interesting about you is your approach to things that make you uncomfortable. The fact that if it makes you uncomfortable, that makes you want to do it. Can you talk a little bit about what drives that? I can't say exactly what it is in me that drives it. I just feel like I have this insatiable urge to not feel like I can't do something. I don't want to not do something just because I feel like I can't. And I like to try new things a lot. So I got into rock climbing. I just, you know, bought a skateboard and started, you know, skating around the garage and trying it out. So I don't want to feel or ever feel like, I guess, I don't know, at the end of my life or, you know, however people say it, I don't want to feel like there's something that I didn't do or wanted to do that I felt like I couldn't do. So it sounds like you're a learning addict. I am actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish I were more like you. <laughs> I think also growing up homeschooled made me like learning because I wasn't forced to do any subject. I just got to do whatever I wanted to do. Biology one day or play Age of Empires the next day. That was totally fine. That's amazing. I know. <laughs> I'm super jealous now. <laughs> I wish Age of Empires was part of my curriculum. I know. <laughs> It was good learning material. That and Carmen San Diego. And there were a lot of great games back then. I think that's a great point. Uh, you know, in most uh, traditional schools uh, around the world, really, people are told what to do, how to do it, when to do it. And the one thing that they learn is that they have no agency over their learning. And that learning is something they're forced to do. Not something that they actually have choice over, not something where they, they can feel some, some sense of autonomy and mastery. Yes, exactly. I feel like that's why people grow up and then push away from that. Like they'd rather do anything else, just watch TV all day or just do anything else rather than do something mentally stimulating. Yeah. So called out right now. <laughs> <laughs> We're not saying that it's, it's, it's bad to ever like take a break. <laughs> <laughs> no, like you're describing this, you know, aversion to learning. And I, I, I grew up in public schools, and I have ADHD, so uh, naturally I 
push against authority and structure because my mind is anything but structured. (laughs) So I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, that's me. Oh God. (laughs) But, but are you give yourself more credit? Uh, You do spend a lot of time learning new things and tackling challenges and things like that. I think it took a lot of years to sort of unlearn that desire to do anything, but have to learn things because yeah, it was, it was this sort of negative thing for so long. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, I I could go on a huge, huge rent on this. I bet Gwen could too. (laughs) I mean, as, as an educator and having previously spent a lot of my time on like as an educator activist, uh, yeah, there are a lot of things I don't like about our school systems. I'll, I'll include a good, a good, um, pick at the end for people who want to learn more about that instead of going on a huge rent. <laughs> Maybe another episode, Chris. I don't think it fits into views on view. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I don't know. panelist episode that's just Chris's rants could be really entertaining. I think the fact really that you're a awesome. member of the core team makes it view adjacent. <laughs> exactly. Maybe, maybe we can do like a separate episode that we just release independently. I don't like want to pick up people's feeds <laughs> with my self-indulgent rants. Chris's views on view. Chris's views on whatever. Then it would make a good spin-off podcast. I think so. <laughs> I would listen to it. I don't know. So Gwen, do you have anything coming up that... Uh, people should know about any any talks you're you're about to give or any workshops anything like that. Annapolis, we're doing some more blockchain workshops for the rest of the year. For if you live in Europe or you go to conferences out there, I'll be speaking at go to Copenhagen in November and then going to Lithuania for a build conference in Lithuania. Whoa, that's cool. Nice. And when is that conference? The one in Lithuania? I think it's called Build Lithuania. When is it? That's in November. Oh, also November. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to one after the other. And then I'll be speaking about VIEW at NDC London again, the Norwegian Developer Conference in January. Awesome. Those are really, really nice, well-run conferences with tons of great people. So I love going there. Nice. And where can people find you? on the internet or, well, I mean, besides uh, Indianapolis, Indiana. And and by the way, I just want to say, you know, we were talking about jargon earlier and like having to remember, you know, like arcane connections to things. Like I just love like Indianapolis, Indiana. Like, where is it? It's in Indiana. It's Indianapolis. I feel like we should all, like every state, every country should have like a city like that. And it should be the capital. Is Indianapolis actually the capital? I don't know. I didn't grow up in the state, so I never had to learn all the capitals. It is the capital of Indiana. Oh, beautiful. That makes perfect sense. Like Michigan should have like a Michiganopolis. <laughs> North Carolina should have a North Carolinaopolis. <laughs> I like it. Let's make it happen. Also coming out with a book probably next month, a self-published book on how to teach yourself how to code. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, nice. just, just, just a book that you're writing. Yeah, like no big deal. You know, whatever. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, if you want to drop those links, we can drop those in the show notes for people or just like, hunt. yeah. Beautiful. And on, and you're on Twitter and GitHub and stuff like that. People can find you there. Yeah, I have a pretty unique name. So if you type in Gwen Faraday, you know, for better or worse, I'm 
<laughs> Spelled like Faraday cage for the three people that helps. <laughs> and nobody knows what I'm talking about. No, like I saw your last name. I was like, oh my God, that's such an awesome last name. <laughs> cool. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on, so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from The Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of The Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. So let's move on to picks. Ari, what are your picks? I have one pick and I just, I feel like you've probably already picked this at some point, Chris, just because I just have this feeling, but it's a Netflix show called Glow, which uh, stands for Glamorous Ladies of Wrestling, which I realized for a lot of you are like, why would I want to watch that? Because it's amazing. It is a little bit campy, but also um, it really sort of explores the dynamics of complex relationships that we all have to navigate on a day-to-day basis. It, touches on, you know, sort of the the desperation of failed first careers, which I feel like a lot of programmers probably had that. So um, I highly recommend Glow. A new season just came out, which I'm totally going to binge watch this weekend. And you should too. Cool. I actually, I, I didn't have that as a pick ever. Yes. I haven't seen Glow. <laughs> <gasps> Chris, you need to. You need to. You will love it. I'll add it to the backlog. <laughs> okay, go ahead, Ben. So my pick for this week, for people who are interested in creating video tutorials, um, I know a lot of people use Camtasia, but I use ScreenFlow. So I um, highly recommend ScreenFlow. Uh, it's just super intuitive as far as just like cutting things together. And you don't need to know a lot. Like Again, I knew nothing about video editing when I started getting into this realm. So if you're looking for a video editing platform, ScreenFlow is well worth it. So that is my pick of the week. It is ScreenFlow too. Yeah, ScreenFlow. Cool. And then I'll do my picks before, before we do Gwen. So my first pick is Elite Dangerous, which is for anyone else who's into VR, Elite Dangerous is the first game that I've played where I actually have the feeling that I've always wanted to have. Like I was like flying an X-Wing and you know, doing like cool maneuvers in space, things like that. You're flying around a spaceship. Some people have described it as like Euro truck simulator for spaceships. And then there is some truth to that, but there, there is also more to the game than, than Euro truck simulator. It's a lot of fun. I just love flying around in the spaceship. It's something that you can jump into and jump out of really quickly, you know, so it's good for short breaks. And then for people who would like to learn more about all the things that are wrong with their education system, 
And when I say our education system, probably anywhere you are in the world, you have roughly the same education system and, and often the same problems, unless you're at some kind of alternative school. So Alfie Cohn at alfiecohn.org, that's A-L-F-I-E-K-O-H-N.org. He has a bunch of like essays and articles and books that you can read on like everything from how like the grades that we have actually encourage people to hate learning uh, and are completely meaningless. I mean, there's a people were talking about like you know not finishing college. There's a reason that as soon as you get like a, a little bit of job experience. No one asks you where you went to college. No one asks you what your grades were in college, which, you know, throughout, you know, college and before that, everybody tells you, wow, your grades are so important. In the meantime, like everyone else knows they're so meaningless. Like, what does it mean if you got like a B plus in this certain class? It doesn't tell me anything. (laughs) Show me what you can actually do. And once you can show what you can actually do, like no one asks about those. No one cares. We definitely should do a whole podcast on this. Yes. I mean, in a separate lifetime, I I have done podcasts and things like this, but I don't do that much uh, direct education activism anymore. Or yeah, uh, yeah, not not, not as direct as it used to be. I used to be uh, very angry about this stuff and organize conferences and have a blog and everything like that. Although uh, you won't find it because I did it under a pseudonym. (laughs) This dark past comes out. Really, I did it under a pseudonym because, like, I had like, fuck, uh, I mean, I had, I had <laughs> sound engineer can political <laughs> enemies. Like, it's scary. Like, the the powers that be want things to stay the same. Yeah. So, for people who want to get radical in a different way, something else that I can recommend: you can watch the the documentary "Manufacturing Consent" featuring Noam Chomsky on YouTube. It's like three hours. I think it does not need to be three hours. But uh, it can give you a, a great introduction into like how the media is designed to control the questions that we even ask. Like, never mind, you know, feeding us the the information that you know may or may not be true, and especially around wartime, like in the United States. Gwen, go on to your picks. So these aren't necessarily related to view, but I recommend that. Anybody, especially if you're a beginner to intermediate coder, that you check out FreeCodeCamp. FreeCodeCamp.org has thousands of hours of curriculum taking you through a full stack JavaScript development and also computer science and security and other topics. There's a great blog, one of the most popular coding YouTube channels, and it's just a really great community to get involved with. And if you ever need help or you're struggling with something like imposter syndrome, there's tons of great people to help help you or just listen to you if you need someone to listen to you. And then kind of a more fun one. Uh, not that learning's not fun. Uh, <laughs> the Sega comic series. I've been getting into comics recently. And Brian, I can't remember his last name, but um, he's a, an excellent writer. And he's the writer for this comic series called Sega. And it's kind of an outer world experience but it has so many concepts that are applicable to you know us earth dwellers so it's a great comic series did you say it was dan is the writer oh brian vaughn brian vaughn okay good i have the right one saga okay i'll make sure to include the link for image comics 
Cool. Yeah, having just come from Comic Con, I'm a lot more interested in like so more like not mainstream comic books now. So this is awesome. One more fun thing. Sorry, I, I know my time for picks is over, but I have to do this, this one last thing. You're less than five. You're good. <laughs> Ted Chang. Ted Chang recently came out with a, a new collection of short stories called Exhalation. Exhalation being one of the stories. Uh, he also did uh, story, uh, stories of my life or stories of your life and others, which I have given as a pick on the podcast before. Both of those collections are very good. These are some, like Ted Chang is possibly my favorite like speculative fiction short story writer ever. Not even just alive. Very, very, very good stories. Uh, very thought provoking and well researched. Guess I know what I'm buying on Kindle now. <laughs> And I, I haven't read all the stories in Exhalation yet, but I read some of them before they were released in this compilation, and I, I really liked them. Okay. And then I think that's it for this week on Views on View. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. And until next week, enjoy the view. This segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.